0: now here 's your host of sound off, Brad Bennett
1: well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, we are back hour number two on the last Wednesday of the month, and you all know what that means. That means we bring on our uh, our friends from the logging and transportation industry, Peter Wood, Scott Dane. And they have a guest with them today by phone, at uh, Bruce Vincent from, uh, Peter, is this from Montana? Yes. Is that uh, where he's
2: from? Hi, Brad. Hi, Kenny. Hi, folks out there. Uh, Nice Wednesday morning. Um, I made a phone call a little bit ago to a guy by the name of Bruce Vincent. He's a logger activist from a little town called Libby, Montana. And I've known him for, I don't know, pushing almost 30 years here, the first time I ever met him. And uh, he's been active speaking, Bruce, haven't you, since 80s, mid-80s or something like that? And he's got a wealth of knowledge. He's got a very, very good understanding about what goes on all over the country and world in the forest industry. Also, what has happened in Montana could easily happen here. And that's why I was hoping that the uh, Duluth City Council and the mayor would be listening today so they could get a little bit of insight what has happened in other places and what uh, could happen here. And very thankful that they were willing to listen to the paper mill and what's going on out there, that uh, to work with them.
1: Yes, yes, that that looks like uh, that is going to get the attention it needs to keep it open. And uh, and I reported the other day when we first brought that up that uh, that the company that owns uh, Versa has has closed another mill, so it's possible to be done if you don't get. Uh, communities and organizations that work together to change the direction or change the marketability of a a mill like ours. So I'm glad to see that is happening. Well, Bruce, welcome to the show this morning.
0: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: You bet. So give us a little bit of background about what has happened in the logging industry uh, up in your area in Montana.
0: Well, it's, it's happened actually all over the, the west, wherever there's public land. And the okay. county I'm from in northwest Montana, it's up by, between Glacier Park and Idaho. It's 80% public owned. So what the public decides to want with their forest is dictates the health of our communities, our uh, forest industry, and our forest. And what happened with me is I, I went to college, then moved back home, joined the family logging company. As a proud conservationist, I thought if we took good care of the forest, it would take good care of us. Absolutely. In the, in the 80s, er, mid to late 80s, we started hearing from the public that they wanted to save the forest. And that sounded to me like a good idea. Well, that was our common ground. I want to save the forest, too. But their version of saving the forest was to stop all management. They, they started right. filing lawsuits to halt all logging on public land because they thought... That was the best way to save it, to keep humans from screwing it up. And they, they decided to save it all right. they, Not understanding how forests really work, how forest systems work, they filed lawsuits, stopped forest management, and they saved the forest to
1: death. How long did it take before the forest fire started?
0: <laughs> well, we the, the forest fires are an integral part of the forest ecosystem. We live in no, fire no. ecosystems. They've been defined by fire since Native Americans moved in after the mile of ice moved out, and they've been using fire, and uh, so fire is an integral part of it. And we we finally had to back up and talk with the public about. What's their desired future outcome? What would they like the forest to look like in 200 years? And yeah. if they want it to be healthy, then they've got two managers that they, they have to choose from. They can either let, let nature do the managing, which is fire, or humans, which is uh, management getting products off the forest and then reintroducing small fires. And what happened is the the public decided they wanted nature to do the managing, and now the West is burning up. We Mm. we have fires that are burning catastrophically huge and catastrophically hot. And the public didn't know that was coming. We did, because if they don't choose forest management and they choose natural management, fire is going to take over. And fire is brutal.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: The thing about fires, when it comes through, it doesn't care who's in the way. It doesn't matter. Building structures, man, animals, doesn't care. It's coming through extremely violent.
1: And and you know what? You know what, Peter? It doesn't doesn't, uh, selectively decide we're only going to take the lower expensive homes. They'll take the wealthy, the middle range. They'll take them all.
2: doesn't matter who's in the way. No care whatsoever. And it comes. Whereas when we manage them, we care. We do.
1: Yeah. So, so, Bruce, is there any hope that you are seeing some changes uh, up in that area now? Are, are people becoming a little bit attuned to the fact that forest management can be a good thing?
0: It is. Uh, I have more hope now than I did when I first started speaking out. And that's mainly because uh, forest communities, we've learned how to lead this discussion. We spent years fighting it. We spent years. We had convoys and rallies and. We were fighting, and we were the third ring of a three-ring circus, and somebody else was taking the gate receipts. There's an entire industry out there that's been built on having fights in the public over the environment, and we participated in that. When we finally backed up and started listening to what the public wanted instead of yelling at them, what uh, we thought the truth was, When we listened to them, we found out that we did have common ground. It's 200 years in the future. What do they want the forest to look like? If they'd like it to be healthy, then let's back up from that point and figure out how we're going to get there. And the public is now finally coming around to the fact that if we want the forest to be healthy in 200 years, we need to do some management now. And they're understanding that logging, harvesting some of the fuel that's out in the forest is part of the answer and that door is opening largely because of the out-of-control fires in places like california and australia
3: oh, yeah.
0: those are the forest ecosystems are disturbance regimes they like to have disturbance and the disturbance they're seeing now is all natural and it's yes brutal so they're, they're well, deciding and, that and we need to do something different
1: and and Peter, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What what happens if you don't manage a forest? Well, first of all, let me say that I I learned years and years and years ago uh, mm-hmm. with some of the rallies that we had happen up in uh, the Tower area and up in those areas. Most loggers were of the opinion that they wanted to see a a natural occurring. Uh, re- regrowth of forests that that logging was a sustainable uh, item. In other words, you could you could log an area a forty today, and in twenty years it would be. Uh, back productive again where you could uh, log parts of it again if you manage it properly. You you
2: have to manage it properly. Usually, like an Aspen could be around the 45-year range. But the rally was up in ore, and it was was a small sale. It was all squabble about, but still you're burning energy and time for just a small amount. Um, What Bruce is talking about is there's been huge debates back and forth, back and forth, and so, what they did is took an approach out there is to back up, take a look okay what what are the people that are getting all bent out of shape and madness about harvesting a tree what do What do they really want? They want to see yeah. a pristine, nice forest that's what I'm saying in two hundred years from now. Well, around here, we don't look that far out, but out there they'll look around the hundred and some year mark um here around here, if you look around like I've said in the past, logging has been happening all over here. And if uh, if it didn't come back, if it wasn't managed, it should look like the moon, actually. It should be just this exactly. huge prairie everywhere you look, and it should be just diminished, yep. diminished, gone. But you look around, all you see is a healthy forest like we've never even touched it. And that's what's happened. Bruce, you want to hit on that a little bit of what happens when a fire gets extremely bad? This This is quite interesting, folks, is when a fire gets extremely bad, what happened back in 1910, if you could describe that, Bruce, then they can get a little bit better picture because here— we don't have that like that but we could we could easily
0: one of the things that we have discussed with the public one of the things that resonates with them is what happens when you have too many trees and when white when european western european settlers landed in on the north american continent it was after thousands of years of management by native americans and where I live, we had 50 to 60 trees to the acre. They burned the valley I live in every 10 to 12 years and had been doing it for eons. And 50 or 60 trees is one thing. Trees are water pumps. A pine tree in the Rocky Mountains sucks two to 300 gallons of water out of the ground a day. And if you have 50 water pumps, that's one thing. But when we remove Native American management and when we developed Smokey the Bear and started putting all little fires out and when we didn't replace any of that with mechanical removal when we took the loggers out of the forest too the forest now has five to six hundred trees to the acre that's five to six hundred water pumps and we can have a normal water year and the forest expresses drought the trees die and then when we have fires come through they don't do good things We have fires like the 1910 fire was 3 million acres that burned in 36 hours. Wow. If if folks want
2: to. I punched up real quick. That's 83,000 acres an hour burning up. Now think about that (laughs) 83,000 acres an hour.
1: And, and of and course, that. guys, Bruce, Bruce and Peter explain how that happens. I know the phenomena of wind cre- a fire creating its own wind, but explain how that happens. I mean, it just becomes like a cauldron.:
0: Well, it does. What happened in 1910? And if folks want, PBS did a, a special on it when it, after a 100 years, they called it the big blow. And what happened is we had a bunch of little fires started with a lightning storm. 1,100 fires, in fact. And then 65-mile-an-hour winds came in with the cold front, blew all the little fires together, and 36 hours later, 3 million acres had gone up in smoke. And it creates its own weather system and fire tornadoes. And uh, we had four-foot-on-the-stump white pine that was getting jerked out of the ground and thrown a mile. I mean, they're, they're horrendous fires that destroy the forest. They don't invigorate it. It incinerates the topsoil. We have soils in Montana now that are burning during our summer fires because there is so much fuel. We're turning our clay soils into ceramics. That's how hot these fires are burning. Wow. And the public is finally recognizing this. They're, they're seeing the wholesale destruction of fires that are burning hotter than they ever have, at least since the last ice age, because there's so much fuel And they're recognizing we need to remove some of that fuel. And that became our common ground with the public. we developed a thing called the Healthy Forest Initiative that George Bush signed into law before he left office. And it's the most progressive forest legislation since Teddy Roosevelt. And what it's designed to do is give the public what they want, a healthy forest in 100 years, 200 years. And as we begin to implement that, the public is understanding that if if we don't manage, nature is going to. And nature is, is a rough, brutal beast, particularly when there are too many trees.
2: All that fuel loaded well, up guys, is uh, ready to go when it wants to go, and you can't stop when it gets to that point. When you're talking 83,000 acres an hour...
1: Well, guys, maybe maybe what we can do, we have to take a quick break here. Maybe what we can do and when we come back, we can talk about because I I do know that there are things that can be done that can be put into a management process that will stop even the huge natural fires that uh, like like Bruce was talking about that come together, create their own wind, create their own uh, storm patterns. There are things like logging roads, cutting back off the roads, things like that, removing the fallen brush. I don't want to put any pressure on you, Pete, but— I'm going to crumble. well, yeah, I think you might uh, <laughs> when you realize that uh, the numbers have just come out. And uh, numbers for radio stations is what we live on. We, we want to know how our shows are doing, our people listening. Cool. And our numbers that came out are astronomical, meaning really? there's a lot more people listening than we even thought.
2: Wow, congratulations. So, that's uh, well, thank that's you. because so that you, you and Kenny, you, really, you, gotta, you guys are here. I'm only here, what, one. what is it, one hour a month? You're here sixty hours, so you got to step up on your hour too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's why Bruce is calling. (laughs) I need help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Giant redwood, the larch, the fir, the mighty Scots pine. The smell of fresh-cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing. Sing! Sing! I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all
0: night and he works all day.
1: <laughs> I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the laboratory. On Wednesday, now, I'm, now, Bruce... Uh... Uh, Bruce, I don't know if you knew it, but uh, that's Peter Wood on that song. He created or k- kind of uh, uh, did the uh, music for that uh, for that piece of wood there.
3: <laughs> you did, Peter? huh? Yeah. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna hear about He's this a bur- for years. <laughs> Very Actually, talented
2: guy. Uh huh. Uh huh. I can't sing a tune in a bucket. I know that.
1: <laughs> no, seriously though, guys, let, let's talk because we were yep. we were mentioning the fact that uh, when these big fires and 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 they do they do occur uh, in areas where there hasn't been good management, yep. but they can be stopped. They can be controlled. Even the big fires can can be contained. And talk a little bit about some of the ways that you can do it by proper management. What are some of those management techniques?
2: Uh, uh, Bruce, out there, if they get pretty good, you basically what do you do? I mean, here, if they get so bad, we don't get them like you get them out there. Not really. Right. But uh, can you describe what it's like when you do get an okay one, then it starts getting more and more and more. There's, there's things that can be done, but it takes time to get there.
0: Yeah, in fact, our communities now throughout the West are studying exactly that. How, how do we manage the forest to protect what's called the wildland-urban interface, the areas where these natural fires are going to come in and start burning towns down like Paradise, California? And what we can do is go into the forest and remove some of the, the fuel, the, the trees, that should have been killed by intermittent fire 100 years ago so we can— thin the forest, we can take the, the young fuel out and kind of mimic what the Native Americans did for thousands of years. After we remove the fuel, we can start low-ground-hugging fires that do good things. But you have to remove the fuel. And we, we have what's yeah. called fire-wise communities out here that are doing that now in the urban interface, going out and removing the fuel to get fire breaks. So if the fire comes roaring down... A hillside it'll hit a managed forest and go to the ground instead of burning the tops of the trees up it burns the forest floor so we can do that there some things need to be in place though and what we're seeing out here and what scares me for places like uh, northern minnesota is before the public came to the realization that we might need to do some management someplace and remove some of this fuel the infrastructure had been destroyed. We didn't have sawmills left. My little town of Libya is oh. surrounded by 12 billion board feet of dead trees, and we don't have a sawmill. And when you don't have an infrastructure, some place to take those little pieces of carbon, that's what wood is, sequestered carbon, if we don't have a yep. place to take that, then we're, we're hamstrung. We're left with nature doing the managing. And and. Place after place after place out west. We lost our paper mills, then we lost our sawmills. We're losing the culture that knows how to do this. Yeah. So,
3: yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, You you know, you're you're correct, and we've lost over half of our saw our our mills in Minnesota in the last ten years. But another part of that whole equation is, as we lose the mills, we lose the logging infrastructure. And without that logging infrastructure, uh, we can't even the, – the DNR and the, and the public land agencies, who actually own 50 percent of the timberlands in Minnesota, um, do not have the resources or the tools to do that forest management. Sure. Uh, Bruce, it's, how
2: about no. – real, real quick, Brad, just real quick. Bruce, yeah. when your town was going full bore logging, you had a good infrastructure of businesses that supported the loggers with the equipment, with the mills. And when it went away, how close is your nearest dealership if you want to run equipment? How close do you have to go now? Because Montana's big. I've been out there a few times, and it's a beautiful big place. But, I mean, when you drive, it feels like you're not moving. You're just driving. You're doing 75, 80 miles an hour. It feels like you're not even moving. <laughs> That's how much room is out there. So from Libby, Montana, and like you were telling me on the, off the air, your son is starting to cut some wood. And- yep. How far does he have to go to get support for if he has to buy parts for his machinery?
0: The closest, there's one 100 miles away. The next closest is 220 miles away.
2: Wow. See what happens when you lose your infrastructure. Now you become inefficient. That's why it's so important that the mills are supported, the loggers are supported, because that's how you prevent catastrophic fires from coming through.
0: And and it's not just the infrastructure that that supports the direct logging, like our implement dealers. Our, my community, our northwest Montana, which, by the way, was started by a family from Bemidji in the early 1900s, old timber barons huh. that finally learned to plant trees, not just cut them. But our, our community had the highest per capita income in the state of Montana. There was no one rich here, but it was blue-collar, family-wage jobs in the sawmills sure. and in the forest highest per capita 30 years ago we now have the lowest our entire wow. I- community infrastructure was also destroyed and is trying to rebuild itself so it it's incredibly important that the entire infrastructure be there or there's no one to do the job that society is now deciding they want if they want a healthy forest at some point there needs to be management or nature will do it wholesale and you bet if we If we recognize that after the infrastructure has been destroyed, it's very, very, very difficult to find the the culture that knows how to do it and the the physical infrastructure to
2: take the stuff to. The knowledge and the boots and the muscle on the ground to get it accomplished. Yep.
1: Guys, we have to uh we have to take our uh, our news break, our Fox News break, but uh let's discuss this when it comes back. One of our listeners just sent me a a, a note this morning and said ask your guests about insect problems and how that affects uh forests, dead and dying trees, uh how does that affect uh fire capability? So uh, and I, I'm interested to know, too, from Bruce, if you've had in, insect infestations in the in the tree industries out in those areas. So let, let's take our Fox News break, and then we'll talk about that when we come back.
2: This is WDSM AM 710 and FM 98.1. Yeah, guys, a little wood choppers ball makes you feel like dancing, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, can't it do does. that either. <laughs> no
2: nah. Oh, well. can't oh. sing, can't dance. Yeah, May as well get out in the woods and chop some trees. <laughs> Just let the sawdust yeah. fly instead. Hey, what else can I say? There you go. <laughs> but anyway. well, uh, guys,
1: uh, as we left uh, for the news break, there we were talking about one of our listeners had asked the question. Uh, Bruce, uh, out there in the uh, western forests, are you having issues with insect infestation? And and if so, how does that affect uh, uh, stands of trees? And, and do you get rid of them or do you let them die? Or, but do they become a fire hazard? Uh, talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, insects, just like fire, are a natural part of a forest system. Insects will come through and thin some of the trees. They'll get the, the weaker, older ones. And the way they okay. do that is they, they drill through the bark, they hit the cambium layer, that's their syrup, that's the, the sugar they're after, and they'll kill the tree if the tree is not healthy enough for that cambium layer to have enough juice to pitch the bug out. You ever, you know the term pitch on a tree? That's where the oh, term yeah. comes from. A healthy tree, when a bug hits the cambium layer, has enough juice to pitch the bug out and win the battle if a tree is stressed if there are too many of them and it that's our water pump situation if you get if you have 5 or 600 trees to the acre all the trees are stressed and they're all giving off a pheromone that only bugs can smell and it it's a signal to those bugs that we're wimpy and if you drill into us we don't have the juice to pitch you out you will win you'll get your sugar and we've got a ah. million Millions of acres of forests that have been stressed for decades now, too many water pumps, too many trees to, to the acre, and the bugs are winning the fight in the Rocky Mountains. For the first time in recorded history, the mortality of our forests because of bug infestations that are catastrophic, our mortality is outstripping our growth. And that sets the stage for fire.
3: We're we're facing the same thing uh, with the bug infestation in Minnesota with the emerald ash borer, as we've had quarantines in Duluth and that type of thing. And uh, we stand to lose the entire um, stand uh, statewide of, uh, of ash. Uh, in Minnesota, Um, so they're looking at what they can do to get ahead of this, uh, and so it creates a problem, but there's no market for ash, there's no biomass market anymore, so that infrastructure goes right back to that infrastructure that Bruce was talking about, that we don't have a way of uh, addressing it, so to tell you the truth, when it comes to the emerald ash bore, there's going to be no stopping them, the DNR loves to have these little commercials of uh, don't move firewood. Um, it's not going to prevent the spread of emerald ash borer in Minnesota. It will slow it down. Don't get me wrong there, but uh, yeah, we're we're going to uh, suffer the consequences of uh, of the emerald ash borer in Minnesota. Hmm. But it can be managed. So,
1: yeah, it, has it, to be it managed. can be managed, and and the forest can be managed, and that's the big thing. Uh, that I think we need to take from this discussion today is that uh, a, a forest, even a, even one that looks like nothing but a robust supply of fuel, uh, can be managed and can be controlled with those with those fires when they take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, I've had a very interesting question from one of our listeners this morning, and I, I don't know if any of uh, you want to address it or maybe you both want to address it. But it's how to survive. In other words, this person said, look, if I'm out in the woods and I'm either hunting or I'm, you know, cutting some firewood or something and a forest fire starts up, you have a lightning strike, you have something and and the fire takes off on you. How do I survive that? People panic when they find themselves in a fire situation where they may be surrounded uh, by a fire coming in on them. Um, is there a is there a a, a procedure to try to uh, find a way to support uh, some sort of life saving? I mean, do you dig a hole and crawl in, or what, what? What's the best way well, to try to give on, yourself a better percent to survive? Be
2: ten, be ten, be depends on where they're at. I mean, you may do it one way here, but out in Montana, you may do it another way because if you get way out in the woods. I know, Bruce, what would you do if you're away out in the woods and all of a sudden if you don't smell smoke, I guess you got a good chance that it's not coming your way, but if the smoke is coming, that means it's coming your way. You know.
0: Yeah, and you need to find a a safe spot that's generally some kind of clearing or uh, back in 1910 there were people that survived by climbing in the river and praying.
3: Yes. Uh,
2: but if those fires get so hot, it could take the oxygen and suck the water right out of there, and some survive and some didn't in those situations.
0: Right. and big fires, most people don't burn up. That fire steals all of the oxygen, and they suffocate before the fire gets them. So finding okay. a place where you can breathe becomes the important part. And
1: so, so maybe uh, something like taking your your coat off, uh, drenching it in water if you're in water, if you're in a slough or a swamp, uh, and then get down low to the water where the oxygen may still be, and then put that uh, wet coat or jacket over your head so that you you keep the fire off of you might be beneficial. Yeah.
0: That's that's beneficial. Firefighters and and we have a lot of them in our family. They have little it uh, looks like tin foil shake-a-bake things mm-hmm. that they climb yes. under to protect them from but when they deploy those things it's a, a last gasp effort uh, you, Right. It, nor, you normally try to find a place if, if a, fires like to burn uphill so if you can go downhill go downhill if you can get in water get in water uh, and find a place where you might be able to breathe
1: uh, and, Scott you, uh Scott, you and Peter, have you have you guys ever read some of the things in the memorial in Hinkley about the Hinkley fire, uh, which was a terrible deal? But most of the people that survived there did find, uh, did get into water somehow and save themselves.
2: Uh, I've never read it. I've heard about the stories about it, that it was so intense that my grandmother supposedly could read the paper at night at their porch in the wow. evenings. That was, that happened so I just remember a few family stories years ago they 're all passed away, and all the people that knew the stories but um it's it 's one of those things that you, you got to keep your you got to keep your calmness about you because if you start running erratically you 're going to not only you 're going to dehydrate kind of fast you're, you got you got to keep your head on because if you panic sure. you 're not going to make it anyway okay no, so you want to keep your head true. Sh- head sharp but Usually, like out in Montana, it's, those hills are big and long-running, and it's like, wow, here it's more. we're pretty flat compared to them. So it depends on where you're at, you know. But, and it,
0: in the old days, course, there was no, they didn't have the communication system we do. Normally now you've got some forewarning that, that you're in trouble. And Right. What, what, out west, we have fire-wise communities, and we ed- have education seminars where we teach people how to make their their homes a safe place to be or what is their fire escape we have fire escape routes for entire communities to get out of the way and nowadays we have more warning than we did in the old days when it blows sure. up though, like it did in paradise that was a town of 30,000 that burned up last year
1: isn't that something
3: we have the and fire program some, some people stayed too.
1: Yeah, and and people stayed in paradise thinking they could take their garden hose and wet their house down and save their house, and it just... It's ridiculous to think like that.
3: As yeah. Yeah, I was nice mentioning, uh, and Kenny asked what FireWise is, FireWise is a public education program that um, advises private homeowners in Minnesota uh, how to, pr- uh, to develop a defensible space around their homes. You know, we love to have our homes in the woods um, with the trees yes. right up against the windows. Um, but you, when a fire starts, there's nothing you know, no fire break, if you will. And so they, they advise clearing a certain amount of area. And it's a FireWise program. It's a national program.
2: Yeah. Um, Just something really quick here. We're going to run out of time here pretty quick, but Bruce, I would like to have you talk about how what it was like with your dad, what he did, and your family. Because, yes, we can have all these things happen, but we don't want to lose the infrastructure of the logging community and the timber community. You want to keep that healthy. And that's the one thing is our big battle is to keep it healthy. A lot of loggers are frustrated across the whole nation. A lot of people are a little bit bothered, but there. The, what's happening in Montana, I think, is a, kind of like an array of hope here that it's slowly changing the tide. Because you've been fighting this for over thirty years, and your dad was in it. Could you elaborate a little bit about your dad and your family and the logging back then? Because that's when the the we are managing the forest. I think a little bit better. I think it'll. I think uh, society as a whole can come around. It's just that it's teachable moments that are they willing to listen. Is a big thing.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that has marked an entire generation, a couple of generations now, of, of folks that work not just in the forest but just on the ground, and the, the culture of production has been under siege for a long time. And my family got to see it when, our, in our schools, in the third grade, we had to take the Iowa Basics test. And when we took the test, the principal and teacher called mom and dad into our little country school in our little logging town and i waited for him to get home that night dad thought i was sleeping but we lived in a <clears throat> trailer at that time we had thin walls my ear was pressed up against it and they <laughs> talked about how to keep me from being a logger because my dad had been told that night if i ended up being a logger it was his fault and he got the message there were tens of millions of people that got the message I I had scored high on the Iowa Basics test, and according to them, I was going to be too smart to be a dumb old logger like him. And for the first time in in that proud man's life, instead of looking at his hands and seeing calluses on his palms and dirt under his fingernails, and instead of that being a source of pride because it built our company, it built our town, it built our state, it built our bloody nation. For the first time in the working people's lives, they looked at their hands and they, they were filled with shame and guilt. They were told they didn't have a heritage worthy of passing on, at least to intelligent children. And that has got to turn around. I got to work with Dad for 40 years, and I can tell you, when we were standing out in the public's forest, looking at a hillside of trees, trying to figure out how to apply modern forest management, I had two college degrees hanging on the wall. Dad didn't have a one, and there was a stupid person standing there, and it was not my father. He had more sustainable <laughs> environmental information in his brain that came to him through his hands than he could have gotten with oh, yeah. a doctorate degree from Yale. It was yep. knowing how to do stuff, and, and we need to protect that. If the leading export of our rural communities is young, well-educated, well-rounded children, what are we going to be left with? Scary Larry and his idiot brother trying to do what with the 1952 John Deere tractor?
1: We exactly.
0: We need a culture of production in this nation that knows how to do stuff and we need to quit demeaning that culture.
1: And well, now. Bruce Scott and uh, and Peter, I want to thank all three of you for coming in this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are making some head rows. Uh, people are understanding that not everybody can be a college engineer. Uh, it does take plumbers and carpenters and all of those things to make the world go round, and some of those trades pay really well and Pretty provide well. long-term jobs. Kenny and that's why this,
2: uh, R- R- this show is so great. Real quick, Brad, Kenny's pointing at me, mean, you better jump in here, but I was asked, the people up in the Palo-Marcom area, they have what's called, yes. this weekend coming up, called Leskinen. I don't know if I spelled, said it right, because I butcher it up usually, it's my German and communist uh, background, right? No, it's, I just can't <laughs> say it right, it's a Finnish community, has a great time, they asked if Kenny would come back up on Saturday because it's called Leskin. I'm not saying it right. She's going to get mad at me, the ladies up there. But um, it's a good time. Go up to Palo Markham at the school there, and they have a very fun time, family-orientated. Uh, Radar and Bruce will give you a sleigh rides. Excellent fun time. Gonna, they're going to have dog. pea
3: stu- soup
2: and Finnish stew. All kinds of stuff. And it's just a little school. It's amazing that school's been closed since the 70s and it looks like it still could be open today it's a very good fun clean family time if you want to go up there head up highway four beautiful forest road look at that that's managed forest right there thank you all very much for letting us come on
1: thank you thank you so much uh scott and peter uh, as always and bruce thank you so much from montana for spending the time with us uh we, we hope we can open some people's minds uh, in this uh, in this area and let them know that uh, managed logging is the way to go
2: take us with you on your mobile and listen all day and work with a free WDSM radio app.